1: a podcast from premier unbelievable Well hello and welcome to another episode of matters of life and death As always I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad John White Hi dad Hi Tim um, and so today we're going to be talking about the concept of digital persecution. Um, this is all building off a, a piece of journalism, a feature I wrote for Christianity magazine. Um, I'll pop a link in the in the description uh, to have a read of that. Um, but it's something I've, I've not really thought about before when I, I was commissioned to look into this whole issue of how is the kind of technological revolution that we've been living through, over the past decades, how is that affecting the specific example of the persecuted church, and how are kind of oppressive regimes and others who want to to harm, control, suppress, coerce Christians around the world? How are they using some of our everyday technological tools to do so? Um, and it was a it was a really fascinating but quite an alarming kind of deep dive as I I read some research and, and spoke to some people who've been working in this field to understand actually that. In many ways, the kind of world of persecution has really been revolutionized um, almost beyond recognition in in recent
0: years. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, um, persecution and monitoring is, is not at all new. And you can trace it all the way back thousands of years to uh, human informers. Uh, you know, it was reading really between the lines in the early church. It was it was an issue. Uh, that there were informers and and double agents and so on um, within the local church and, and particularly at the time of the great persecutions. Um, but then as sort of electronic surveillance came in, um, and certainly at the time of the, the communists uh, in uh, Russia and Eastern Europe, it was very much a kind of electronic, it was all about microphones, uh, hidden microphones and... Uh, and people with headphones on listening, monitoring, recording conversations. And uh, there were lots of stories then um, about that kind of amazingly invasive monitoring. But once the smartphone starts, and also things like um, facial recognition, cameras and all the rest, it sort of moves into a new era, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Clearly, you know, people have been using technology of the day
1: to persecute Christians that they have been doing with everything else for, for many centuries. But I think what, I'm, what I realized when I was looking into this issue was, was that it's not just um, you know, giving a fresh set of tools to the same people who have been trying to persecute Christians, but it enables new forms of persecution because uh, you know, the, the power of the internet, of, of artificial intelligence, of the smartphone, of the microchip, has has is so far outstrips, you know, even what we're used to in the 20th century of, you know, you know, analog microphones and, and radio. So it's really um, has a kind of totalizing, totalizing effect uh, on on persecuted Christians in many areas in a way that previous bouts of persecution haven't been quite so overtly kind of suffocating.
0: Um, Yeah, and clearly social media uh, gives someone the possibility of spreading uh rumors um and or uh, uh, disinformation about christians and, yeah. and that's something you've you've come across hasn't it
1: yeah so so one of the interesting angles in this is that um a lot of digital persecution as we'll talk about later is is emanates from states um from from governments um but there's also lots of places in the world where where non-state actors, where, where kind of individuals and groups want to persecute Christians and something that social media in particular it has this amplifying effect. Whereas, you know, the example that I, I was given was was of um, in, in parts of India, there's a, a real problem with, with Hindu nationalist extremists who kind of hate Christians and see them as kind of, um, you know, trying to forcibly convert Hindus away from their faith and kind of representing this colonial outsider Western religion. Uh, and there's a real conflation between Indianness and Hinduism, and so a kind of Christian Indian is this contradiction in terms that must be expelled. And you know, at times that that there's very traditional persecution that you know they might go and try and burn down the house of a Christian or or um, you know attack them in the street. But but increasingly, what 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 people working this the sphere of seeing is is the use of social media to kind of whip up angry mobs and so you might have in one village only a a small number of people who are kind of committed to this it's called hindutva this kind of very nationalistic extremist um chauvinistic kind of brand of hinduism um who want to kind of force the christians out but by themselves they're not big enough to cause a real threat But actually, by the power of kind of sending malicious rumors around on WhatsApp groups or on Facebook, and when the kind of, you know, virality algorithms get their teeth into that, and it starts spinning around and getting passed from person to person, in many ways... It, it it um it can whip up a mob of people who might otherwise not be interested in Hindutva ideology and haven't previously got any animus towards Christians, but they believe, you know, there's one famous case where um, some people uh, died uh, in in a one village because the water supply became contaminated. And the, the local kind of Hindutva extremists said that this was because a Christian family living in the village had cursed the water. And and a mob of people, you know, hundreds strong, vastly larger than the people who started the rumors, got so enraged by what they were reading on their phones and came to believe it must be true because it was being forwarded to them so many times. They ended up lynching this family and killing them.
0: Yeah, and it, it is deeply disturbing, isn't it? And it's a, it's a sort of just to step back a bit about social media. I think it's it's such an interesting and, and painful parable because if you go back all the way back to Mark Zuckerberg. And the origins of Facebook, you know, we've talked about this before, I think, but Zuckerberg comes out of a kind of uh, Silicon Valley, um, cool, slightly sort of hippie, uh, information wants to be free, you know, make everything free, make everything uh, open, you know, what can possibly go wrong? And, and so he says, I want to connect every single human being on the planet with with Facebook. You know, what can possibly go wrong? And yet, just that sort of naive idea that once you connect everything, it's all going to be peace, truth, love, and harmony. <laughs> and then lo and behold, it's like this kind of emergent property that out of just, just connecting human beings, rather than there being peace, truth, and love, there comes a kind of outpouring of anger hate um, and, and and people die and and terrible things happen simply by connecting human beings and interestingly, part of the problem with the technology uh, giants who come out of this techno optimistic uh, mindset is they don't have a category for evil. Um, Whereas, you know, from a Christian point of view, it's not the slightest bit surprising. You know, if we understand the concept of the fall I and mean, what Jesus says about the evil of the human heart and out of the human heart comes all these terrible things, uh, we're not that surprised if you connect uh, human beings together, some terrible things can happen. Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's, you know, it's that well understood kind of phenomenon, of the power of the mob, where you gather together a 100 people and somehow as a... A kind of amorphous organism they're able to perpetrate perpetrating terrible things that none of these hundred individuals would do or even wish to do by themselves it's that multiplied by millions tens of millions online and you get these online mobs that are tragically can have real world consequences you know the most infamous would be uh, actually didn't target christians but muslims um, rohingya muslims living in, as one of the minorities in in burma in myanmar who many outside of they have really been suffering a genocide in large part being whipped up online on Facebook, um, uh, by again, in this instance, kind of Buddhist nationalist Burmese mobs, um, aided and abetted by the army. Um, yeah.
0: So I was just going to say, it was interesting that the way that Silicon Valley has now, um, tried to adjust to this reality is that it now thinks uh that most people are fine and really nice and then there's a few people and they are bad actors and, and bad actors are the problem and what we've got to try and do is identify the bad actors and stop them and provided we can block them um and get rid of bad actors everything's going to be fine and i'm afraid again this is just a naive um perspective because the reality of it is, is that all of us are potentially bad actors all of us have have this potential within us and so in order how you prevent that coming out i think is is a real challenge isn't it yeah one of the (laughs) things one of the things that's being suggested and i think is absolutely right and that is that we have to have really robust identification um, so that everybody who enters social media their identity is immediately obvious to everybody and and that that it it is illegal uh, and there is strong control to to have anybody pretending to be someone else or hiding behind a uh, a false identity or using bots or whatever that that one of the things is that we have to be able to identify who everyone is uh in social media and i think that in itself would be a very um res- would would restrict evil it wouldn't stop it but it would restrict it
1: there's a lot of merit to that idea. I'll just briefly note the irony is: is that some of the people we're talking about, the victims here, are, are people who would suffer from that as well. Because in many parts of the world, you cannot be open and public under your real name if you wished, if you're a, a pastor or a Christian. Um, and you know, when this idea is, is floated, I know that there are lots of human rights groups, not just christian religious liberty groups but human rights groups in general who say that this actually would have disastrous consequences and would be welcomed by by some repressive regimes because it gives them an even greater ability to control and to stamp out kind of dissident illicit speech on social media because people can only currently be free to talk about that because they know that it can't be traced back to them and their real lives so these things are very there's no (laughs) obvious policy solution they're very very complicated So as well as the kind of social media dilemma, which, you know, comes up almost every episode it feels like of this podcast, the other thing that really was interesting and concerning looking into this was actually about slightly more, less kind of everyday technology or even everyday technology that's been used for quite oppressive ways, often by, not by um, groups, but by states, by governments. Um, And so, um, which has the effect, I think, of both the two kind of sides of the coin are both censorship and surveillance um, and in surveillance um it was hard to ignore the fact that a lot of the threads seem to lead back to china as this kind of technological superpower which is pioneering not only in software but also hardware but at the same time this all this software and hardware is being produced by a deeply repressive state which under the communist party is has tried to kind of suppress control at times even eliminate the church within its borders um uh, and so, this surveillance state effectively has arisen in China, um, which um, is increasingly the the fire of that is being turned on 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 the church and particularly those Christians who don't worship in the kind of official, complicit, state controlled propaganda Protestant church, um, which yeah, is a massive, I, massive, massive issue.
0: I, I think it is, and uh, unfortunately, uh, what you've got in China is you've got this combination of. An increasingly oppressive totalitarian uh, regime under President Xi, um, coupled with cutting edge uh, science and, and artificial intelligence and technology and so on. And it, it's a really interesting and, and challenging kind of uh, a problem, I think, because during the pandemic, China, for uh, its own purposes decided to uh, mac- massively ramp up its surveillance on its entire population. And apparently, what happened during the pandemic is that they had been developing very particular techniques, um, for the Rohingya Muslims, um, and the and sort of-
1: Uyghur Muslims in this case, actually. Sorry, sorry
0: Uyghur, you're quite right. <laughs> A different persecuted Muslim might not different- You're quite right, the Uyghurs. They'd been developing this um, technology there, um, and that when the pandemic came, effectively, what they then did is rolled out very similar techniques across the entire population, mm. and in particular using facial recognition, but also the smartphone as a source of of, of monitoring, and um, also what was particularly troubling was apparently they were also for the Uyghurs they were connecting collecting DNA mm. um and matching up the DNA with the facial recognition with uh, the smartphone you know all all intended to be able to maximize the degree of social control um yeah and so uh, yeah I, I I think there's there's no doubt that um we're now in a new era where we have to accept that the levels of surveillance that are possible are extraordinary.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's one academic I spoke to um, who who kind of studies some of this wave of digital persecution, and he kind of noted that, you know, if an oppressive regime, let's say China, wanted to know what was happening inside one particular church, they would previously, they'd have to re- either, you know, coerce or or, or recruit kind of informers to go into the congregation and spend lots of time kind of following the pastor around on foot. Whereas now they can just use the publicly accessible CCTV cameras outside and facial recognition software to know automatically, automatedly, every single person who walks inside the building, they could um, hack into the live stream that the church is doing and so know exactly what's being said inside. And then you can just track the pastor by the fact that his car is now effectively also a bug His modern cars all connect to the internet. And so they can be tailed remotely without having to fuss around with kind of, you know, Mission Impossible style physical bugs. You can just figure out its IP address and, and, and hack into the network. And as it's talking to all the various, you know, 3G, 4G cell towers, you know, exactly where it is. And sometimes you could even hack into its microphone built in and find out what someone is talking about inside the car. And so it's given this kind of panopticon, totalizing three hundred and sixty degree view, which would previously been very, very costly with man hours and resources, and also only ever be partial before.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really hard to know, you know, where this is all going, isn't it? I mean, again, we've we've talked about it before, and, and part of me feels that the traditional concept of privacy mm. uh, has has now. Uh, become almost meaningless uh, in in that it is simply not possible to be a completely private individual where nobody knows where you are, nobody knows what you're doing, nobody knows who you're meeting. Um, what I think, and of course it would be wrong to say only that this is only happening in China mm. because we know that this is happening across the world in many Western States as well. The difference is that in Western states, that there is at least some control over how the data is all being used. Um, All that data is available um, and is accessible to the intelligence services. Um, The theory is that that is under some kind of democratic control, and that that data is only being analysed and used where there is a specific. Uh, need for terrorism national security and so on yeah and and we
1: saw with the you know if you remember the kind of snowden leaks about the american nsa um that security services are both in western democratic countries in this case as they are in china have a kind of insatiable demand for data you know data is being produced in the trillions of pieces on a daily basis by people on their phones on the internet and the security services are just gobbling up as much as possible and that's that was it emerged from these leaks by the whistleblower that that was happening with the NSA and GCHQ and of course their motives were purer in that they were trying to you know analyze the data to find people who were plotting terrorist attacks or whatever but the same fundamental processes it's it's once this fire hose, once you realize that there's that people are generating this fire hose of information about themselves every time they interact with a digital device it's almost impossible for for intelligence services whether from china or from the the, the west to to resist the urge to suck it all up on the server somewhere just in case you might need it at some point um, which raises the kind of specter of at the moment we're pretty confident that that Unlike in China, this has not been used to track when I go to church or, or what Bible apps I'm reading online or what my WhatsApps are saying. But that capability exists, and should the status of Christianity in the West shift over my lifetime, who knows what will happen?
0: Well, I think that's right. You know, we know that it's perfectly possible for quite extreme governments to be voted in into democratic societies, and if, for whatever reason, ten years down the line, an extreme government is voted in here in the UK and that regarded that uh, evangelical Christians as uh, a fundamental threat to their political continuation and the, and so on. Uh, how, how confident are we that our British systems will resist mm. that? And, and so I, I think these are, you know, these are huge issues which, which we're all faced and, and, and certainly when one thinks, I mean, we know that there are many, many Christians in in China and in these other totalitarian regimes who are somehow having to negotiate these extremely complex issues.
1: Absolutely. Because I mean, the other side we haven't touched on yet is, is the one thing, one side is that digital technology allows surveillance, as we've discussed, to be ramped up enormously. Uh, you know, We haven't even touched on the idea of, you know, installing spyware surreptitiously on a on a smartphone which basically turns it into a bug and you can turn on the microphones or the camera remotely read all the messages even in encrypted apps all that thing but there's also the censorship so again to use a Chinese example in recent years there's been a kind of ramping up of 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 an enforcing of laws which kind of ban the 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 dissemination of information about Christianity online and so you know there've been algorithms sent which kind of automatically scan through you know online bookstores the chinese version of kindle or audible or or anything like that and anything that includes kind of banned characters which include like jesus or christian are just automatically removed and censored and then even more so they have ai kind of driven programs that scan the whole open internet and look on social media and on blogs on on anything and again when they find um suspicious or banned words it raises a red flag and so if you're a chinese christian and you want to you do something as banal as kind of share the details of your next prayer meeting online you have to start speaking in code because you can't say words like let's go and pray or we'll be reading from the book of ephesians because that's going to trigger some alarm and it doesn't need as you know in the olden days of the kind of totalitarian regime of the 20th century, uh, you know, huge warehouses of people listening into bugged telephones. This is all happening at very low cost automatically by software. And so it creates, again, a much more totalizing effect. There's even been reports of people speaking live on China's equivalent of Zoom doing kind of church meetings or Bible meetings. And suddenly the Zoom is cut off because someone used one of these banned words. and, And even on a live audio feed, the software can recognize it and, and intervene to kind of stop it. so it really has this chilling effect because you're like hang on I I don't just have to worry if I'm talking to a human being in person. are they an informer but it's like anytime we interact and express my faith online, I might be come up against this kind of panopticon of of censorship.
0: To matters of life and death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking um, this, of course, using code words again is nothing new. No. And that, uh, again, my experience of um, persecuted Christians in the time of the communist era in, in Europe, uh, there was an elaborate um, set of code words that we used. Uh, because the assumption was that the communists were listening to every conversation, and therefore Christians agreed uh, uh, avoiding using particular terms. And I, I was just thinking, there is the speculation that even in the New Testament, in in one place in Paul's letters, that he's using uh, a, a recognized code, and that is uh, it's in Philippians where he he talks about Epaphroditus who he's been longing to see you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. Uh, and then he says later, Receive him in, lo- in the Lord with all joy and honour such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So whatever this mysterious illness was, he, was, he nearly died for the service of Christ. And it's been suggested that actually that was a code word, that the, uh, when people were being tortured, uh-huh. oh, uh, it was actually a code. Um, and they yeah. said, oh, he's been very ill.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you say, n- not, not a new idea, not a new concept, but um, I think dig- the digital technology is kind of allowing it to infiltrate more and more areas of life. Um
0: there was another technique you mentioned in your article which I thought was very interesting about the police taking somebody into an uh into the uh, police station and then getting them to to make a call to someone outside the country.
1: Yeah, that yeah, that's that's a really chilling one, isn't it? That's that's that was that was um kind of pioneered again uh, in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs. Where um, there's there was there is a a large number of kind of Uyghurs who have gone into exile as a result of the persecution, including some kind of prominent religious leaders who are um, you know campaigning and um, activating, (laughs) campaigning against uh, the the Chinese kind of repression there, and and the the favoured solution by by local officials is is to send some police officers to go and pick up the the mother or the the family or the children of this exile bring them to a a police station and then insist that the 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 relatives start a video call a whatsapp call probably or some kind of video chat call with their relative and and they're in germany or america or whatever somewhere safe and they see a call coming in from their mum, a video call they probably do this regularly they're like oh great right they open up that and then suddenly on the video screen what they see is not their mum, but they see a police officer in the foreground in the background is the mum and the family sitting there looking scared and the police officer very sternly informs them that you know you need to come back to China in person get on a flight tomorrow and fly back to China right now you know or else dot 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 and they leave it very you know very unsubtle about what the consequences of them not kind of voluntarily repatriating themselves um, which apparently is an incredibly effective Kind for of a force of form of coercion and, and really has helped China kind of its tentacles reach beyond the borders of China itself and, and, and um, either stop or, or kind of repatriate troublesome, troublesome individuals. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is that we've been talking a lot about China. And one, as you mentioned, this is not unique to China, a lot of these capabilities exist in the west even if they're not currently being used in such an oppressive way towards christians but but actually it goes a lot further than than just china as well because there are dozens and dozens of countries around the world which have um bought into this technology from china that have that have installed cctv cameras or these software or these ai programs into their own internet networks um so that they can repress monitor coerce surveil censor Uh, And sometimes, in some cases, there are reports that that some of these countries are sending their officials back to China to be taught how to use this technology. And so the kind of toolkit that China has perfected in in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs is now rolled out nationwide against Christians, is now then rolling out across particularly parts of the developing world in, in Asia and Africa and sometimes this gets tied into what's called the the belt and road program which is a huge kind of scheme china has to um offer very cheap loans and credit to build up infrastructure in in poorer developing countries um but it often comes with deals so so um you know as you build bridges airports roads china often ins- insists that that these countries that partner with them also install their technology when you build out telecoms networks or the internet and so when you're putting in all the kind of physical infrastructure of modems and routers and stuff to build out a country in Africa, say, for example, internet, these are all, it's all Huawei kit, you know, it's Hikvision CCTV cameras and Huawei modems. And what that means is that, you know, there's no such thing as a private company. So if your data flows through in China, so if your data flows through a Huawei modem or, or images are being captured by a Hikvision camera Um, A lot of a lot of the time it means that that data is effectively flowing back to data centers in China, which means you've effectively given it to the Chinese Communist Party. And so there are vast parts of the world which have effectively been stitched into this kind of techno authoritarian surveillance state um, through through uh, the backbone of their Internet and their communications networks now being effectively run from Beijing.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's remarkable, isn't it? Because uh, I've I've read statistics showing that if you take the entire global population, depending on precisely how you calculate it, but something like sixty to seventy percent of the entire glo- global population is now in totalitarian, totalitarian or authoritarian regimes, and it's a, a fairly small minority of the world's population that are now genuinely democratic. Uh, countries so there is globally th- this growth in a kind of might is right in other words whoever is has the power whoever is exercising state power has the right basically to use technology to control their population as they wish mm. and uh, and i think this is a huge threat for christians across the world
1: and even more concerningly it's not just explicitly authoritarian countries you know some of the countries that have that have bought into this kit are countries in africa for example like uganda or or nigeria which are you know fragile democracies flawed democracies in many cases but they're not explicit you know they're not north korea they're not china um they're not even russia you know these are countries that have a degree of kind of civil society but it is too tempting slash too hard to resist the kind of economic might of china which says i'll build you a bridge and for incredibly cheaply or i'll put up your um your cctv network but the deal is we we basically have access to to the technology and the data and we will induct your kind of staff into into this and I, and i worry that actually it's not just that more of the world lives under unfree regimes, but it's that more of the free world is dipping its toe into authoritarianism because it's convenient. And there are plenty of examples I could use even from our country where our government has has dipped its toe into author- digital authoritarianism because it, it's convenient, because people don't really understand the rights that have been taken away.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. And uh, I, I think this is one of those big meta issues, isn't it, about uh, democracy and um, liberal, you know, classical understanding of what liberalism means versus this soft uh, authoritarianism, uh, which is, as you say, very attractive to governments across the world. And it does feel as though democracies are fragile, um, you know, not just in Africa, but uh, in many places as well. Just changing the topic slightly, I think one of the other interesting things is how um, how much we can trust one another when uh, within this kind of totalitarian regime. So often there are people who are effectively informers, and how that uh, damages the possibility of trust. So that was something you came across, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. It came up actually in a case study I did. I I spoke to um, someone from Christian Solidarity Worldwide who who worked in the Americas, and she would use the example of Cuba, where they have a kind of more subtle form of persecution of Christians there, which doesn't often look like you know kicking the door down and dragging someone off to prison, but it's an attempt by the communist government there to kind of degrade trust within congregations and of the population in in the churches. And so there was a lot of things where they would, you know, they would um, hack into people's Facebook accounts and and post out pornography or or stuff like that to try and discredit pastors. Or they would set up kind of bot networks on on social media and spread again malicious rumors about pastors that they were corrupt or or having affairs or something like that. And and because uh, paradoxically because cubans don't have very have not had access to the internet for very long and it's very controlled they're actually often apparently not very digitally literate and so they don't have the kind of cynicism and suspicion that we have of stuff that we read online you know if someone posts about on facebook in cuba it means it's true and so the authorities have taken advantage of this to to um impersonate pastors and, and set up bot accounts that muddy the waters and and spread rumors and try and discredit people and 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 this person i spoke to this kind of persecuted church advocate said sometimes this has incredibly effective at basically causing kind of religious liberty defenders and, and dissident pastors church leaders who are under threat from the government to really retreat in on themselves because they feel like they can no longer trust anything they read online they can't trust who anyone is if they are who they say they are there's this kind of soup of disinformation and 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 toxic stuff are out there and the only solution as they see it is to is to is this kind of It's to it's paranoia. It's to it's to fall in on yourself. And and she says sometimes you know they won't even speak to her despite being based in America and being this kind of trusted advocate for the persecuted church because they they no longer trust each other. And this becomes incredibly corrosive because you cannot you can't run a church, congregation, a community certainly not one that's under pressure and threat if you haven't got healthy interpersonal trusting relationships. And that's what's so corrosive about this form of persecution.
0: It certainly is. Uh, But again, I'm afraid it's not new. So I've just returned from a trip to Romania and uh, speaking to Christians there um, in the time of the communist era in Romania, uh, a very large number of uh, Christians within the churches were actually co-opted by the state and became state informers secretly. And uh, apparently they were often, it was extreme coercion. They were told that unless they agreed to become a state informer, uh, they were going to be imprisoned or their family were going to suffer. And so there were extreme sort of pressure put on uh, Christians to become informers. And so what it meant was that um it was well known that the churches were riddled with people who were working for the communist state, and that when communism fell, there was never any kind of recognition or, or about who these people were, and they carried on being part of the church and apparently living Christian lives, even though there were rumours that many of them were informers and so on. And what that meant was that long after the communists had been overthrown, this, this atmosphere of mistrust, uh, you never really trust anybody, you're never really honest with people, and I found, uh, coming from outside, um, from the UK, that a number of church leaders and senior Christians would be honest with me about their concerns. Uh, but they said, you know, I can't speak like this to anybody in the Romanian church because there's nobody I really trust. But because you come from the UK, I think you probably were not a communist in
1: <laughs> Yeah, this is incredibly destructive, isn't it, when... um you 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 can't build those kind of vulnerable relationships you know we've all I hope had that experience in church of key individuals with whom you can be totally honest and real with and that's often where a lot of the best kind of discipleship ministry happens in a small scale not kind of sitting listening to a sermon but in small prayer groups and in home groups and in in that kind of thing And, and if there's no one like that then I guess my fear is that the faith remains kind of surface level, and it never really goes down deep because you can't you can't replace that with just kind of solo Bible study.
0: That's absolutely right, and and so trust is at the heart of um, of of Christian relationships. And there's there's a just a step back a bit. There's some very interesting, I find it interesting anyway, philosophy theology behind all this, and that is that um, the Greeks. Uh, philosophers uh, thought a lot about truth and it was it was a sort of fundamental part of greek philosophy but they saw it as a very abstract uh, thing that was something that was um, uh, a sort of mathematical truth an abstract uh, kind of reality and that concept of truth passed into western philosophy and it's still there as a mainstream part of western philosophy and the whole question of epistemology how you know whether something is true or not it's all based on this kind of rather abstract ideas the interesting thing is that the hebraic understanding of truth uh, which we find in the bible is really entirely related to trustworthiness Uh, apparently in english the 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 three words truth trust and troth t-r-o-t-h as in i pledge you my troth a sort of covenantal love for the other, a commitment to the other. Those three are all connected closely in, in fundamental meaning. And when uh, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, reveals himself uh, to Moses in Exodus, he, one of the words he uses, he uses five words, and one of them is the Hebrew word emet, which means literally trustworthiness. So it is God who is the ultimately trustworthy one. And all truth depends on personal relation. It depends. The way we discover truth is that truth is is what a trustworthy person tells us. That is that is the biblical definition of truth. So if you don't know any trustworthy people, hmm. you're in trouble.
1: And this, what you're saying, really reminds me of that famous passage in... um. I think it's John eighteen, where Jesus is on trial before Pilate, and they have this exchange about Pilate's trying to figure out who he is. Are you a king? Are you not? You know, and 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 Jesus ends by saying, Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, and Pilate's immediate retort is kind of scoffing, What is truth? Mm-hmm. And you see the two sides of the coin there that Jesus says, you know, there is a truth and it's found in a person. It's found in the God who I am the representation of, and Pilate is this kind of from the Greco-Roman world of like, you know, who are you to say what truth mm-hmm. is? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. strikingly modern, really, it <laughs> even is. though it's two thousand years old. This kind of like, you know, epistemological uncertainty and doubt and skepticism, almost postmodern in some ways. What is truth? Who is truth? And Jesus says, no, no, there is a truth, and it's in a person.
0: That's right, and and, and in fact. Um, you know the most cynical as you say is the postmoderns, and, and Foucault is an example of this where he says that anyone who claims to be tr- truthful is actually just making a claim for power whenever I say this is the truth what I'm really saying is I want to have control of the levers mm. uh, it, it, that's the ultimately cynical view and, and of course applied to Jesus it means well as Jesus is just making a power play you know, Christians are just making a power play. They're claiming their truth, but what is truth? You know, ultimately, n- truth is an invention that we all we all invent our own truth. And the most powerful repudiation of
1: that is that this con- this this claim by Jesus to you know to be the true King comes in the context of where he is self evidently not resisting himself about to be put to death. And so, actually, it's that it completely undermines his idea that truth claims are all about power plays because Jesus is empty himself of power he is powerless in this situation before the might of the roman army and the zeal of the hike of the high priests and and he says i am still the king of the jews i am still the messiah it's not going to stop you from killing me i don't even want really to stop you from killing me um i'm going to empty myself of power because that is the deeper truth because that's who god is
0: and i think when we apply it to ourselves it it's basically if i want to be trusted i have to tell the truth mm. i i have to live the truth and of course this is where the abuse scandals that we've had in the church are so corrosive because when it suddenly appears that somebody who you know has been living in a way uh, when it suddenly appears that the features of their life come out which are completely incompatible with the way they were claiming to live that that is so deeply corrosive isn't it and it's and so I think you know for all of us it's a reminder that um truth is not about words it's ultimately about how we live and whether we are trustworthy people.
1: And that kind of brings us neatly back round just to finish with with the kind of conclusion of the of the piece I wrote about digital persecution um, and I was really struck by I spoke to a guy from Open Doors which is again a charity that kind of advocates for the persecuted church and and he said you know there was some common sense stuff that we should all be doing or Christians in in persecution should be doing about you know not taking your digital devices into services and that kind of stuff but he said really that the fundamental heart underneath that is to go low tech is to resist high-tech position by going low-tech and he says you know this is a quote real genuine relationships of trust that's what's going to make the difference of persecuted minority churches that are underground and so it's about the first response is to is almost to resist the the techno-authoritarianism by not allowing ourselves to live on our phones or to replace our real world friendships with facebook so-called friends or to only consume church via a live stream thousands of miles away but it's to go low-tech go back to face-to-face go back to basics and build up those trusting interpersonal relationships that will sustain your faith, um, particularly under times of great kind of testing and trial.
0: Yeah. And that's interesting. Again, it's all about the heart, isn't it? In other words, it's not about the surface appearance. It's about living from the heart, um, about the unseen, you know, that ultimately what makes us as people is what is unseen. Mm. Um, but it's of course what god sees so so god sees the heart god knows our hearts god knows what our fundamental intentions are and um, and the challenge is to live in a way which is which is consistent with the way he's calling us
1: Mm. and speaking of unseen things another academic i spoke to had a fascinating idea which is that for christians who are concerned about the persecuted church you know one potential vocation or one one kind of career option is to actually go into kind of professional truth telling is to un- to, uh, to in- uncover the unseen things so that might be learning how to you know decode uh, algorithms that are running kind of suppre- oppressive ai software or he said you know it might be going into kind of audit and accounting so that you can go through the books of these huge international conglomerates who are sending data around the world and and figure out, you know, how how are they doing this and where is that money going to and what is that service? Is that buying? Uh, uh, because a lot of the problem is that our previous kind of models of persecution, the kind of lo-fi uh, 2G, 1G versions, or uh, as you were, persecution is based around it all being kind of localised. And so, you know, you need to write a report about how this group is burning down the houses of those Christians in that part of the world and we send it to parliament and our job is done. And he said, actually... A lot of this persecution now is is flowing around on undersea fiber optic cables and is being facilitated in server farms everywhere. And if we if the church doesn't adjust to this kind of tech, high tech, AI first world, we won't be able to expose, um, you know, the unseen persecution, as it were, that's going on on people's phones or on their laptops.
0: Yeah. And that makes me think of this analogy of salt and light, you know, that what light does is it penetrates into dark mm. places. It illuminates what people want to keep hidden. And so I think the work of organizations like Transparency International, which I know actually quite a few Christians are part of that, of uh, just illuminating, shining a bright light into places, dark places, which people want to keep hidden. That's a very Christian phenomenon. I mean, that you know, you think of the the prophets of the old testament mm. so that's what they were doing you know they were illuminating the, the corruption and the false prophets and all the rest and, and the, maybe the modern versions of that will be pe- people doing the digital detective work
1: absolutely absolutely right well we've uh, run out of time um i hope that was a, an enjoyable interesting discussion i certainly enjoyed digging into this topic um i'll i'll put a link uh if you want to read the whole feature um uh, in the podcast description uh, but otherwise thanks everyone for listening um don't forget to check out dad's website that's john and you can always get in touch with us we'll do another q a episode soon i'm sure we answering some questions from listeners so do get in touch with us um, emailing molad m-o-l-a-d at premiere.org.uk um, thanks for listening and we'll speak to you again next week Bye bye
0: Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable.